It is November the 10th, 1.02 p.m. here on the West Coast of the United States. My name is Arthur Ossadurian. This is the Apollo Gia Center weekly live podcast, Q&A, uh, interviews that we bring in various guests and we pick their brains because they are brains to be picked and we'll talk about whether that's a thing that could be even picked today or not. Uh, so I don't want to take... Uh, any more of our time because I'm excited for this uh, because I've gotten to spend uh, some time on in a, in a car ride. We I mean, we spent kind of the weekend together, but the car ride was my favorite part because it was just the two of us. So, Eric Hernandez, welcome to the Paul Gill Center podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, brother. It's good to be on with you. Well, um, we started that off by saying uh, we're picking brains, but um, maybe it's minds that we need to be picking instead of brains. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, so it's kind of a pet peeve of mine when people use that kind of language. Uh, what my usual response to when people, that's probably why you said it too. When people say, can I pick your brain? I usually ask, why would you want to do that? My brain's just matter and fluid. I'll let Correct. you pick my mind instead. Correct. Yeah. Um, that That is proper. I, I, I regularly catch myself in uh, in saying stuff like that and then going, well, I don't really believe that. So I need to I need to change what that's about. Eric, I'm going to read a quick bio of yours that's on your website, um, and then uh, we'll go we'll go beyond that. I think it'll be f- kind of a free-flowing thing. So, folks, just to introduce you guys to Eric. Eric is an evangelist and apologist. Uh, what I love about Eric is he, that apologetics is a tool for evangelism that he does, and I think that's a proper view of apologetics and the way we should do apologetics. Uh, he is... Uh, the Apologetics Lead and Millennial Specialist for the Baptist General Convention of Texas. So if you're in Texas and you're involved with some churches in Texas, make sure you get in contact with Eric. Uh, he does a great job of communicating the gospel, communicating and answering the questions that uh, people have. I don't, I don't want to just put that into a category of millennials and stuff like that. These are just questions that people have. Um, Eric, you work with uh, Leighton Flowers, and um, and you are right. a uh, you're a very good debater. Let me just say Thank that. You. And you've debated uh, a host of people, but maybe two of them that a lot of people might be familiar with are Matt Dillahunty from the Atheist Experience, right? Um, and Aaron yeah. Raw. Aaron Raw uh, is uh, is a character. Uh, if for, for those who have uh, are aware of Aaron Raw, um, I, I and again uh, some of these debates uh, sometimes are formal, sometimes they're kind of supposed to be formal. They never end up being f- formal. I, I suppose that really depends on who you're asking. Uh, you're married, and uh, last I checked, you have two kids. That's right. Okay. Well. Boy and girl, that's right. That's you got a busy life. You travel quite yeah. a bit. <laughs> yes, yeah. And what I love about my job is when I when I am on the road quite a bit, uh, they let me just stay home and don't have to come into the office and just either work from home or just take some time off and spend it with my family. Amazing. That is always good, man. It's always good being a part of a team that understands that, because people don't un- don't like generally like travel time being an airplane being in a car driving somewhere and uh, you live in a big state uh, the biggest state uh, some might argue the yeah. best state um, that's right uh, floridans might disagree with that but hey 
Well, what do we know? But yeah, family, it's always my first ministry. And and as you know, we always need to keep that in mind. Amen to that, brother. Amen to that. So um, let's start off, I guess, where we started this conversation off with that, that little joke. Um, why? Wh- what is the mind? Yeah, so, so good question. Um, and, you know, my, my introduction to, to even this um, was essentially to give some background context was my freshman year of college. Um, I took my first philosophy class and um, loved it, found out my professor was an atheist. Uh, next semester, I intentionally took another philosophy class, but from also an atheist professor who people warned me not to take his class because how antagonistic he was and condescending. Uh, but, you know, I, I call me crazy, but I, I've always believed that all truth is grounded in God in one way or another. So I wanted to take his class because you know, although I still had questions about Christianity, uh, I knew that if Christianity were true, I needed to know why. But I also knew that if Christianity was false, I'd still like to know why, and perhaps this guy's the man for the job. So uh, to try to be brief on that, the the pivotal day in class in my life and ministry was when he essentially gave the following argument. He he pulls out an antidepressant pill, and he basically says, uh, well, the soul, according to religion, is immaterial, and it, this is what gives us hope in an afterlife. Um, but then he said, uh, and according to Christianity, your emotions and states and beliefs and all these things are, are within your alleged immaterial soul, and these are also immaterial. But the problem was, he said, if I took this antidepressant pill, it has the power to affect and change the alleged immaterial states of my soul. Mm. But how can that be? How can something tiny and physical affect the immaterial? Because when you look at the body, you look at the brain, he said scientists never find anything even remotely close like a soul. All they find are physical elements, carbon, hydrogen, neurons firing. There's nothing immaterial that they find. And he basically says, well, how, how can we explain that? And he essentially said, well, the answer is simple. Uh, the answer is that there is no soul. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There is no God. There is no afterlife. We're just a physical brain and body. Uh, and we need to learn to live with this fact, get on with our lives and stop believing these foolish fairy tales. And what, what really bothered me was, um, well, first, I had never met anyone that didn't believe in the soul. I, I thought everyone did. And I had never much less heard an argument given against it. And what troubled me was, um, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, essentially, if there's no resurrection, then Christianity is false. Well, um, when you look at the, the concept of resurrection, it, yes, it's a physical resurrection, but you're, you're also more than physical. Paul alludes to an intermediate state of existence right. where we will exist without a body. So there's going to be this time period. If you die right now, prior to the final resurrection, you will exist but disembodied. Paul refers to this as a state of nakedness. And, and that gets into other problems we can maybe get into later uh, regarding resurrection is that, well, if there's no resurrection, Christianity is false. And I'd say by the same token, if there's no soul, then how could there be a resurrection? And I would say by the same life and reasoning, Christianity would be false. So um, basically, you know, so here I sit in class and I'm thinking, well, I can either ignore this, you know, brush it under the rug, or I can roll up my sleeves and do some metaphysics and learn some philosophy. And that's essentially what I did. I'm not one to just ignore things. Um, And then so I kind of started just looking into stuff, didn't know what apologetics was, and uh, heard of this guy named J.P. Moreland that this other apologist uh, philosopher, William Lane Craig, kept mentioning when it came to the soul. So, you know, I bought some of his stuff, and I loved it. I mean, I just, I fell in love with his work, and it was a a real breath of fresh air for me. So, that being said, um, to your question about the mind, what is the mind? And and even, you know, what, what is a soul? What's the relationship there? Well, we'll start. Well, let's start with the definition of the soul. Um, I hold to what's known as uh, substance dualism, 
And what my professor was arguing for would be something known as physicalism. So starting with the latter, uh, physicalism is, is the belief that essentially what my professor said, that everything is physical about human beings. So um, if your audience is familiar with the uh, worldview of naturalism, which essentially uh, we could say is the idea that only the natural world exists, nothing like God or angels or demons, nothing like that exists. Everything is natural. And when you apply this ontology, this perspective of existence to human beings, you get what's called physicalism. And the strictest form of physicalism is something uh, like what my professor held to, which is everything is physical. All the properties, parts, substances, everything is physical. And again, apply that to human beings. Well, we're just physical objects. Well, substance dualism would argue that no, while, while there is a physical aspect to our existence, there is also something immaterial. So dualism just means twoism. Mm -hmm. And substance dualism is the idea that uh, I am a substance, an immaterial substance, and then I have a body, which is something physical. And while I wouldn't call the body a substance, it, it, we could just say it's it's a physical thing uh, um, that, while embodied, uh, you could say makes us up. So I am a soul that has a body. Uh, that is a substance dualist position. Now, within substance dualism, and you tell me when to slow down or, or when to you know stop We're doing expanding fine, man. something. Keep it up. So, <clears throat> I I am a soul. And, and the mind is what's called a faculty or capacity of the soul. And again, you know, we, we can break these down a little bit further uh, uh, briefly uh, in a little bit. But essentially, so what is consciousness? Now, consciousness is one of those things that you would define ostensibly. Um, that means you point to or give an example of it. So uh, I could put it this way. If you encountered someone who was born blind, how would you define the color purple to them? Well, you couldn't because they have no awareness of the color purple. Right. So colors are even things that you would have to define ostensibly. You have to point uh, to something and say, you know, like behind me, that's purple. You give an example. Consciousness is defined the same way. Uh, now there are five states of consciousness. And even that word state is, is a technical term in metaphysics. Um, to, to, there are substances, states, and properties. To, to grasp the concept, consider something like water. Water is a substance that can come in three different states, and each state is characterized by its particular properties. So when water is in a hard state, it has a property of being hard or solid. When water is in a, in a liquid state, it has a property of being fluid and, uh, you know, gas state, you know, vaporous and so on and so forth. Now, I am a substance. The soul is, uh, we can define as an immaterial substance that possesses consciousness and animates the body. And when I teach on, on um, uh, the question of the soul, I say there's really just two basic points you need to make. Um, the first point is, or the first contention, if you will, is that consciousness is not physical. And the second contention is that I am more than a brain and body. Uh, I am something more than that, namely, I am a soul. So let's start with the first, that consciousness is not physical. There are five states of consciousness, and like I said, you define it ostensibly. So I as a substance have a faculty of mind and my mind can come in five different states those five states you can have thoughts beliefs sensations desires and acts of will or you can just call it volition so thoughts beliefs sensations desires and acts of will now how do we know that there's five well this gets into something here's going to be the foundation for for this entire discussion to to kind of um to, to follow it with the arguments that I'll be using. <clears throat> so when you think of, of questions about philosophy of mind, which is a, what we're essentially talking about, um, 
your your typical uh, naturalist and whatnot, uh, atheist, what, what they typically like to do is they'll say, well, what does neuroscience have to say? Or what does science have to say about, mm-hmm. you know, these kind of things? And and essentially what, what my point to that is that this is the wrong tool for the assessment. It's the wrong question to ask. Why is that? Well, for a few reasons. Um, an illustration I once heard was the following. Say you overhear your neighbors arguing <clears throat> and you you approach them and, and you know, you want to try to help settle their dispute, you know, see what the argument's about. And essentially you um, – you, you find out that one of them has claimed that there's an invisible man living in his house, and the other neighbor says, well, I'll, I'll come investigate for you, and a few hours later, he comes out the house, and he's upset, and he's calling this his neighbor a liar. So you find out, okay, well, how did this start? He says, well, after he told me there was an invisible man, I went to go investigate, and then he says this. He says, I looked for hours and hours, and I never once saw an invisible man. And, and I promised you I looked everywhere. I looked in the closet. I looked under the bed. I looked in the bathroom. And not once did I ever see the invisible man. And, of course, the other neighbor is, like, confused and, and just aggravated and says, well, of course you didn't see him. He's invisible. Now, the point to this is we can all know and agree that what this neighbor has said in his defense is true. If, if there is an invisible man, you wouldn't be able to see him, so you cannot use your sense of visibility to argue there is no invisible man. Now, this doesn't prove that this guy is right, but it does prove that you cannot use your sense of sight to try and disprove the existence of an invisible man. Correct. By the same token, if the soul exists, it is non-physical. And to try and use what's known as empiricism, which is a view that knowledge is attainable only through the five senses, to try and see, touch, taste, smell, etc., um, this is similar to a stronghold known as scientism, which is a view that science is the only way to gain knowledge about reality. And the problem with that is that if the soul exists, it is non-physical, whereas science, though a wonderful tool for investigating the physical world, it is a tool that is limited to only studying the physical world. So if the soul exists and is non-physical, then you cannot use a discipline like science, which is limited to the physical, to try and investigate something non-physical. This is what we call in philosophy a category fallacy. Uh, it'd be like trying to use a ruler to measure your weight. It's the wrong tool for the assessment. So what is the right tool? Well, logic, reason, and philosophy. And this is where we can get into um, some philosophy known as Leibniz's law of identity. Um, let me see. Can I share my screen here? Um, yeah, go for it. Let me see if I can pull that up. I believe so. Let's see. And I think so. Um, because I just remembered I have some slides I could just throw in there. Okay, so I'll just do the entire screen. All right, <clears throat> can you see this? Can you see it? Yeah, I can see it. Uh, the audience okay. can see it for some reason. Hang on. No worries. And essentially what we're going to get into talking about is what is known as Leibniz's Law of the Indiscernibility of Identicals. That's that's the big $5 word okay. for it. Um is it is it ready? No, is it what you're sharing right now is your personal. Okay, so that we okay. can see. Just don't change out of that. Okay, gotcha. Um, Sorry. So let me see if I can pull right. that up. There it is. Okay. Okay. So like I said, uh, and you can see this. Yes. All right. So like I said, it'd be the wrong tool for the assessment. Um, so what we're going to talk about is is known as the Leibniz's Law of Identity, uh, which you can just call it Law of Identity, or some people call it Leibniz's Law, and essentially. Leibniz's law of identity states the following. Um, our two points to reiterate is consciousness is not physical, and I am more than a brain and body. So 
According to Leibniz's law of identity, if you have two things in question, say some A and some B, now, if they're the same thing, so uh, if they're identical, and in philosophy, when we say identical, we mean literally the same thing as. So if I said Eric Hernandez is identical to the guest on your show right now, then I'm referring to one person, not two, because uh, we're talking about um, identity. Uh, it's, it's a one-to-one -one correlation. So let's say we're asking about some A and B. Now, according to Leibniz's law, if A is the same thing as B, then whatever's true of A is going to be true of B and vice versa, all the properties, all the characteristics. But in principle, if we can find something true of B that is not true of A or even vice versa, well, then given Leibniz's law of identity, it would follow that they cannot be the same thing. So here's a thought experiment to kind of wrap your mind around this. Suppose you walk into a lab and you see two bottles of clear fluid. Uh, one is labeled water and the other is labeled chemical X. Now, let's pretend the label with chemical X was ripped off or you couldn't read it. And you want to ask yourself, are these two substances, are, are these two liquids, are they the same substance? Well, you know one is water, but you don't know what the other one is. So you see that they're both fluid. You see they're both clear. They both weigh about the same. And you come to the conclusion that they must be identical substances until you turn over the bottle of chemical X. And on the back, it says caution flammable. And you think, ah, okay, well, I know that water's not flammable which means even if I don't know what chemical X is, given Leibniz's law of identity, at the very least, I know that they cannot be the same thing. Mm. Now, with this in mind, uh, let's look at consciousness. Like I said, there are five states of consciousness. You have uh, thoughts, beliefs, sensations, desires, and acts of will. <clears throat> now, if what my professor was saying is true, then whatever is going to be true of the mind uh, is going to have to be true of the brain and vice versa. Because remember, on his view, everything is either identical or reducible to something physical. So if the mind exists, uh, and there, believe it or not, there are some people who, who will deny the existence of consciousness. Uh, someone like Daniel Dennett comes to mind, Alex Rosenberg. But if you concede the mind exists and you're a physicalist, a strict physicalist, you're going to have to make the mind identical or reducible to something physical, and this would have to be something like the brain. Now, remember, Leibniz's law of identity. If two things in question are the same, then whatever's true of one is going to have to be true of the other and vice versa. But in principle, if we can just find one thing true of one that's not true of the other, they can't be the same thing. And when it comes to consciousness, this is something trivially easy to do. So I'll just we'll just do three examples. The first, let's take a, a state of my mind, like my thoughts and beliefs. My thoughts and beliefs can have the property of being true or false, but no region of my brain has a property of being true or false. It doesn't make sense to say that these group of neurons firing is true, but these other group of neurons firing, well, those group, that group is firing false. That doesn't make firing is not a true or false kind of mm -hmm. thing. Um, you know, uh, same thing with functions. You know, you, you mentioned I debated Aaron Ron. We actually debated on the existence of the soul. And he said that the mind was just a function of the brain. And so I asked, well, how can a function be true or false? My engine running in my car is a function, but my engine doesn't function true or function false. It either functions or doesn't function, but there's no true or false to it. Um, take a, now, let's look at the brain. Take a state of my brain. My brain can be in a state that weighs three pounds, but my thoughts or beliefs don't weigh three pounds. And the joke is, while you may be having heavy thoughts during this uh, podcast, you won't have to buy a neck brace after we're done uh, because mm -hmm. you're having these heavy thoughts. Uh, my brain can be in a state that that measures seven inches long, but the smell of a rose or the taste of a banana, which is a sensation in my mind, is not seven inches long. 
You know, it makes no sense to ask how many inches long is the taste of a, uh, of a banana or the smell of a rose. And while there's many, I mean, we could do the whole episode just on this, but while there's many more examples and other aspects of consciousness that, that make it different from something physical, the point is simply this. If all the properties of my mind are not physical properties and all the properties of my brain are physical, well, it follows that if consciousness exists, then it cannot be identical nor reducible to something physical. And hence, there must be something to ground it, something like a soul. So given the first point, consciousness is not physical. And again, what is that? Well, there's five states, thoughts, beliefs, sensations, desires, and acts of will. And I mentioned earlier, why five? Um, well, th this kind of seems to be what everything falls under. And, and uh, why these five? Because take something like thoughts and beliefs. Again, using Leibniz's law of identity. How do we know that thoughts and beliefs are something different enough to place them in different categories? Well, consider this. I can have thoughts I don't believe, and I can have beliefs that I'm not currently thinking. Mm. So they're different in, in, in their certain respects to where they're, you can say, okay, they're not the same thing. Thoughts and beliefs are not the same thing, though there's correlation or overlap. So that would be the first point is that consciousness is not physical. And I'll, I'll see if you want to uh, say anything or, or add or push back or ask questions on that. So, um, so some folks might, uh, their pushback might be something like, hey, what you're doing is you're kind of sneakily removing this from the study of science into your own kind of realm of religion. Generally, that's the accusation or, or philosophy. Um, and then there you can, you know, dabble with the ideas and the concepts and all that stuff. But in science, you can't do that. So you're trying to kind of play home field advantage why is it and you spoke about this a little bit but just like clarifying it why is it that it just is it, this is a thing that science cannot study it's impossible for it to study this rather yeah, than so you're, you're moving the goalpost essentially right like that's the accusation yeah so um the question when it comes to philosophy of mind uh there are essentially two questions that uh anyone anybody who wants to explain uh the nature of human beings there's essentially two questions they need to answer or at least two questions the first is what is consciousness and the second is uh, uh what is a thing that possesses consciousness what 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 is a thing that grounds its existence um you know and and of course or what is the i or self now these questions are not questions about physics they're questions about metaphysics and that's the difference uh, uh science does not touch metaphysics um now there can be some correlation that you can discover in a, a a posteriori sense which means after the fact that we won't necessarily get into that but um we can put it this way any any conclusions you you have different positions within the philosophy of mind you have physicalist dualist uh something called property dualist panpsychist all these other kind of views but the but here's here's the kicker is that take something like physicalism and substance dualism whatever conclusion one comes to by looking at the data both positions are what you would call empirically equivalent theories what does that mean it means that both sides are going to agree on all the scientific empirical data we're all we're going to agree on all the data and our conclusions will differ but they will be conclusions on the basis of philosophical assumptions not scientific assumptions or discoveries mm. in other words there were both myself and the physicalists will not disagree on any point of, of empirical data because again these are not questions of physics they're questions of metaphysics so if you hit me over the head yes you're going to mess up um you know you i may lose some brain cells you may mess up some something with my neuron connections 
and the physicalist and I agree with it, and we we agree that that's going to make us dizzy, it could make us uh, you know lose our memory. We agree on all of this, but then the conclusions is going to be philosophical in nature, not scientific. So Michael Roos, uh, a philosopher, atheist philosopher of science, he said. He says, uh, one of the quotes he says I like is that he says, science does not ask certain questions, so it is to no surprise that it does not give certain answers. Mm. Um, and then you have also uh, uh, even atheist scientists kind of you know, essentially conceding this point that when it comes to uh, questions of consciousness, this is why you have what's called the hard problem of consciousness. Basically, what is it and where did it come from? Now, I, I think there is a hard problem of consciousness, but I think it's a hard problem for the naturalist, not for the Christian. Because if you have if, – if the foundation of ultimate reality uh, resides in the existence of an immaterial, unembodied mind, then it's no leap or stretch to say this is what gave rise to all the other finite minds. Um, by contrast, if all you have, as J.P. Moreland puts it, is in the beginning were the particles, then you're not going to have chunks of matter coming together forming more complicated chunks of matter and just getting consciousness squirting into existence from just rearranging parts like Lego bricks. Um, so here you have this hard problem of consciousness, which is essentially the question, where does it come from? What is it? But again, it's a problem for the naturalist because he has nothing within his ontology that is anything even remotely like consciousness. We could describe everything about the physical universe without ever having to appeal to consciousness um, so, so there seems to be no, no need nor room for this. As Paul Churchland puts it, there mm -hmm. seems to be neither room uh, nor need for anything immaterial to explain anything about ourselves. So, <clears throat> how, so why is this not smuggling in philosophy, so to speak? You know, I find when people kind of use that accusation, it's almost like they're saying, hey, this is too convenient for you. And my response is, well, truth can can be convenient sometimes yeah, and that's okay when you're the one whole, uh, when you're the one believing the truth of course it's convenient um right absolutely and and you know you have nobel prize winners uh in neuroscience um uh someone like john eccles and you have some of the world's leading neuroscience mario mario beauregard um jeffrey schwartz these are guys who are dualist and yet some of the leading uh, uh neuroscientists in their field when it comes to uh, uh, believing in, in a dualist position. So in other words, one cannot say that a belief in the soul is due to scientific ignorance when you have some of the leading scientists in this field who do believe in the soul. And they will say, yeah, this is a question for philosophers, not neuroscience. Um, and I think there are some interesting empirical or, or data that we can look at that I would say does lend credibility to a dualist position. But at the end of the day, Everybody's going to agree on all what the data looks like, but our conclusions are going to differ philosophically, not scientifically. Correct. We're going to interpret the facts uh, depending on the worldviews in which uh, we're coming at them from. Uh, so, the, okay, so let's just say there's consciousness. Consciousness is somehow related to this uh, non-physical, immaterial thing we're calling the soul. Um, there's a big difficulty that arises here in the sense of, cool, but we know for sure we have a given. We know we have a body. And we know we have this immaterial thing. How are they react relating to one another, right? How are they connected with one another? What is that connection point? Yeah, so good question. This this is uh, known as a pro the interaction problem essentially. Um, and I think it was um, uh, Hasker, uh, another great philosopher of mine, uh, William Hasker, who said 
that there is no other uh, when it comes to philosophy of mind there is no other argument that is overrated and overused than the interaction problem and overstated um because essentially so so let's kind of uh take this and, and see where where do we place it within this uh question that we have so far because so far let's let's just say for the sake of argument we've established you know consciousness is not physical and it exists now the question then becomes because we haven't got into the soul you know the second point is you know i am more than a brain and body but even just here at this point you have the question of essentially okay how does it interact but note this question would only come about after whether or not we've decided if it exists in other words if we're conceding it exists then the question of how does a soul interact with the body is not a question that stands or falls in proving whether or not the soul exists. It's an epistemological question of how something works, not an ontological question of whether or not something exists. So even if, so even if we don't know how it works, we just know that it does work, we're fine with it. We just say, hey, I don't know how yeah. it works, but clearly it's working. Yeah, right. absolutely. That that's in, in other words, even if we just went that far, I think that that's that's uh, sufficient because you know I don't know how my car works. I'm not a mechanic, but I drive it every day. Correct. You know, and and, and we and the the normalcy of this, I guess, is that we on a daily basis use probably a thousand things that we don't know how it works. I mean, I got a computer in front of me, and you have one in front of you, and mics and all this stuff. Like I don't know all the details. Like, I don't know what all the details of this microphone is. All I know is it's plugged in. I hit a button. Bam. It's working. Right. And I don't need to uh, know how it works for me to say that it does work. It is the case. So that was That's right. That's right. At the very least, we're, we're saying that you can plead ignorance and actually believe in the thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so this is why, why it's, it's at least to me, at least it, it's, it's somewhat, uh, astounding that so many non-believers or, you know, people objecting to this place so much emphasis on that as if this is somehow a defeater or a gotcha. Um, because again, it's, it's a epistemic question, not an ontological question. Now setting that aside, um, there's, there's a few ways that one could respond to, to something like this. Uh, the first is to say that, um, that this is just a, a primitive basic action, what's called a primitive action. So in other words, the person, when the person asks, how does it interact? How does someone interact with the body, something physical? Um, they may be assuming that there's some type of intervening mechanism. So if I say A causes B or interacts with B and someone says, well, how does that happen? They may assume there's some intervening mechanism. And I could say, well, A interacts with B by way of C. But note that doesn't solve the problem. It just pushes back the goalpost because now the question is, well, how does A interact with B? Uh, how does A interact with C in order to interact with B? And how does C interact with B and, you know, caused by A and whatnot? But then even after you answer that, then you have you have to ask, okay, and how does that happen? In other words, there's a few options when it comes to this. And one is you can lead to an infinite regress, which means the action would never happen. Or we can use Occam's razor and say, well, it's just a primitive basic action, even if how we can say that a just causes b or interacts with b directly without any type of intervening mechanism again even if you don't know how um on top of that they may be looking for something physical but again you know you have the same problem of either it being an infinite regress and some even assume uh what's known as causal closure so if there's no god and there's nothing immaterial and physicalism is true jack one has argued then we have to satisfy the law of what's known as causal closure 
which we can essentially say it is a view that every physical event must necessarily have a prior physical cause. Mm. And I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself here because okay. this is where I get into the, the argument for free will, where essentially if you have a neuron firing in your brain and that neuron, those group of neurons is what makes, you know, Aristotle said this, and forgive me for jumping all over the place. Aristotle said, if I move a rock with my staff, then we can explain that the rock was moved by the staff. The staff was moved by the hand. I move my hand, but then the question is, what moved me? And in this chain of events, I would say this, the, uh, the physicalist has a few options. Because what is free will? Well, free will is essentially you are the first cause, the source of your will or actions. You know, If I raise my hand and I was the one that caused it, I had free will. But if you shock me with a taser and my arm goes up, well, then I was caused by something external and prior to myself, and that doesn't qualify as free will. So how do we explain me moving the hand to move the staff to move the rock, what moved me? Well, the physicalist can say, okay, well, there was some neurons firing in the brain, and that made the hand move, that made the staff move, that made the rock move. You know, And that, that started within me, so I'm the first mover, I have free will. Well, the problem is, given the law of cause or closure, if every physical event necessarily requires a prior physical cause, well, then neurons fire in our physical events. So now you have to ask the question, what caused those neurons to fire? And again, he can posit another set of neurons firing to explain that set, but same problem and so on and so forth. So again, you have this problem of an infinite regress, in which case the action becomes impossible. But given that we saw the rock move by the staff and the hand and by me, well, then that first option isn't available. So what's the next option? Well, I'd say the other, only other option is that you'd have to say at some point in this chain of events, no matter how many sets of neurons you want to posit that fired, at some point, there was some physical event external and prior to myself that caused these group of neurons to fire, and then that caused the hand to move, the staff to move, the rock to move. But now you're no longer the first mover. Now you're just an intermediate link in this chain of events, and if you're not the first mover, you can't have free will. So if there is nothing like a transcendent soul that is beyond transcendent to the body that can act on the physical as a first mover, well, then you have to give up the notion of libertarian free will. Now, some naturalists do give it up, so who cares? Correct. Well, some naturalists also claim to be free thinkers. And the irony is, is that if there is no free will and determinism is true, then every thought and belief you've ever had was causally determined by something external prior to yourself, which means the last thing you can call yourself is a free thinker. Yeah. So these people would have to concede they did not freely choose to become an atheist. They were causally determined Correct. to, and they had no other option. And uh, other than that, they can't blame me for being a theist as well, because right. then I'm caused to be a not only a theist, but a Christian. So what's the point of having these conversations anyways? It, That's it right. kind of leads you to this weird stalemate where you can't tell me I'm wrong well, you're going to tell me I can't tell you I'm wrong, but I disagree with you, so I'm going to tell you you're wrong anyways. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, so I say, so you're essentially, there's two price tags that this person's going to have to give up. One is what, I, what I'd call like an intellectual integrity or a rational responsibility, and the other would be uh, moral responsibility. So, um, I, interesting story, I was, I was at a Christmas party once and uh, that a friend of mine invited me to, and I was introducing myself to some people, and for whatever reason, everybody who talks to me always wants to talk about God and apologetics. I don't know how that happens, but That's, it just comes uh, up. You know. <laughs> and um, so, so the guy heard I was a Christian, and you know, he just felt the need to share with me that he used to be a Christian, but you know, he's now an atheist. And I said, "Oh, you know, and what what led you to that?" 
And essentially, there were two things he said. One, that religion was a cause of, you know, war and evil and all this other stuff and, you know, uh, oppressing people's rights and so forth. And the second was a realization that we never had free will to to choose which religion we were part of because, you know, people are Christians because they're born in America. And if you were born over here, you'd be a Muslim. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's all, you know, already determined. So you're not even free to choose what what to believe. So why believe in any of it? And as I'm listening to him, um, I did what I call the lazy approach. Uh, so keep me in your prayers. Next year, I'll have a book coming out on witnessing to nonbelievers uh, or, you know, conversing with nonbelievers. And I have what I call the lazy approach. And I said, you know, so I start by asking questions. I said, so let me see if I understand. There, there are two main factors that led you away from, you know, Christianity. One was the belief that um, religion is the cause of evil and wars and oppressing people's rights. And the second was that we don't have free will. He said, yeah. And I said, okay, and, and, and how did you learn this? He said, oh, I, you know, I spent so much time studying. I read the Bible. I read, you know, neuroscience. So he's spending all this time looking at the evidence. And he says, I want to be rational. I want to follow the evidence where it leads. I said, okay, gotcha. I said, okay, well, a few things confuse me. I said, on, on, on the one hand, you're claiming that these people who do these religious atrocities, they should be held accountable, right? He says, absolutely. And I said, okay, but if there's no free will, how can you hold anyone responsible for what they do? How can there be any moral praise or blame? And his eyes just kind of widened like he had never – like the thought never crossed his mind. And, and I said and, – and here's the second thing. You're telling me that one of the other things that led you away was this belief that there is no free will and that no one's ever free to believe any of these things to begin with. I said, but if there is no free will and you're claiming to have followed the evidence – then I can't help but ask if you freely came to believe in the conclusion that there was no free will. And he said, yes. And then he paused and says, wait, no. And then he was just kind of confused. Now, I'm not trying to argue with the guy. What I'm basically is trying to do is show the incoherence of his entire position, showing that the very thing that he claims led him away from Christianity are the two very things he cannot claim to have on his worldview that he's now come to hold. And and so the the irony in all of this is that, um, you know, and we started with the interaction problem was essentially, OK, yeah, you could bite the bullet and say there's no soul, but now you're going to have these problems. And I'm not saying that's why we should believe in it, but I say that that gives credence to the belief in the soul because we haven't even gotten to other possible responses yet. But essentially, you, you can't claim intellectual integrity. I became a, an atheist on the basis of following the evidence. No, you were just consciously determined to. And you were called, you determined to believe that you're following the evidence, but you could have read, you know, a children's book and said, well, that's evidence. There's no soul. It, it was all determined. And you can't claim to be more rational than the religious lunatic yelling that the world is going to end, you know, on the street corners every Sunday or the homeless person yelling that, you know, everybody's going to hell. You can't claim to be more rational than mm -hmm. they are because your thoughts and beliefs are no different than your hands, feet, eyes, and teeth. They were all determined uh, by something evolved into this, and you can't take any kind of credit for it, and you were never free to believe anything otherwise. So <clears throat> that that said, now let's look at okay, the the back to the interaction problem. That there are a few interesting responses other than the ones we've given. One was you could just say I don't know, and that wouldn't prove or disprove there's no soul. The second is you could say well it's a primitive basic action. It just a directly causes b, and there's nothing inter there's no intervening mechanism. Mm -hmm. And then there's a few other ones. Um, because one thing some uh, people appeal to also 
is they'll say, well, this somehow breaks, uh, you know, the law of the conservation of energy, energy, that if the soul did exist, it would have to create uh, some new energy and that can happen. Well, that that would also assume some, I would say, naturalist ideas of the world. Um, you know, that, that'd be one assumption first that the person would have to unpack. Same thing with cause or closure. But but here's here's an idea is that um, one, I think Moreland says something like, uh, well, the amount of energy it, it might even create might just be so small it's undetectable. It could also be something like um, it could be trivial in comparison to the amount of energy that's released. So he, I've heard Moreland say, imagine if there was like a, a switch on the Hoover Dam and you, all you had to do is flip the switch and it would release all the water from the Hoover Dam. Now, how much energy do you think would come from all that water being released? I mean, tons of energy. But how much energy did it take to flip the switch? I mean, in comparison, nothing at all. And he says what well, could be the case, you know, one one possibility is that the amount of energy the soul produces is like flipping the switch on the Hoover Dam. You know, you're either not going to detect it or it's going to get lost with all the energy energy that's released, you know, whatever the soul does. Um, so it could just be, you know, taking the energy that's there and just maneuvering it and so forth. Uh, another interesting answer is uh, alludes to the notion of quantum entanglement. <clears throat> okay. Now, quantum entanglement is the idea that there are there are two objects so far related by distance that there's no transfer of energy. But the the interesting thing is is that when you observe or measure one of them, it seems to cause the other one to do something in the opposite direction or the opposite state, something to that effect. So basically there is no energy transfer and just by observing or, or measuring one, it causes a, a reaction to happen in the other. And again, there's no energy, you know, transferred to anything like that. So, so there's different interesting views and there's, you know, people way smarter than me, which, which isn't necessarily too hard to do, um, who've looked into these things. And, and, but at the end of the day, I say, I think it's a primitive action personally. Um, I think those other answers are interesting, and no arguments for the soul stand or fall on whether we can explain it or or on using one particular answer to explain these things. Okay, um, <clears throat> let's let's shift gears here, here a little bit. Um, let's see if there's any questions that we might or comments that we might uh, reflect on before we switch gears. And and there's a few other arguments. Um, that I can use for the second point if you want me to get into that as well. Uh, I think that's fine. Okay, let's, let's, there's an interesting subject, I think, uh, that deals with neuroplasticity. Um, <clears throat> and uh, neuroplasticity, uh, neuroplasticity as an argument for the existence of the soul. Okay. Uh, the idea here being that uh, your um, neural pathways uh, can be damaged and broken, all that stuff, and then they can recreate or create new ones. But the way they create new ones is by you thinking in a certain direction, and that would mean that your thinking comes before the physical kind of connections, therefore it's not physical, um, and it's uh, beyond that. It's immaterial, but it's having a cause on the material, clearly the case. And then that again, th then that leads into like tra spiritual transformation and transformation of the yep. mind and all, all sorts of really cool spiritual kind of stuff, behavioral change and all that. Yeah. Um, how does how does the naturalist account for something like that? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and to just kind of even unpack that notion further. 
So one of the guys I mentioned earlier, Jeffrey Schwartz, he's one of the leading researchers in the world on things like OCD, anxiety, and depression. And essentially, people with these conditions, uh, their their brains wired differently. The chemistry of their brain is is set up differently. And um, uh, who was it? Uh, I forget his name. There's another neuroscientist. I've heard him say um, neurons that uh, fire together wire together. And essentially, let's suppose you have a person who's struggling with anxiety and every time, you know, they, when they see it rain, your average person may think, Oh, you know, I might get wet. Whereas a person, you know, to, to over-exaggerate for the sake of making the point, a person with anxiety may say, Oh, it's raining. You know, I might drown today or something like that. And what begins to happen is every time they have these anxious thoughts, especially when there's a certain uh, uh, stimuli uh, being uh, received, it digs a groove into the brain. And the more this happens, the deeper and deeper that groove is dug in the brain to the point where the person doesn't even have to reflect anymore. It just becomes second nature to have these emotions or reactions or sensations every time a certain type of stimulation is, is being received. Now, this this for someone like with OCD, this is debilitating. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why, I mean, you know, they'll they, they know they need to go to bed, but they're checking, you know, to make sure they've set their alarm. 50 times, you know, in, in, in an hour or something like that. I mean, and it is really is that bad, but every time they're doing it, it kind of satisfies their anxiety or their OCD, but then it's going to come right back and they got to do it again. It's like a fix they need. Mm-hmm. Now what, what uh, Schwartz has, ha- has done is he did this experiment and you can see the pictures in his book. Um, he has one called you are not your brain. And I think uh, another one brain lock where he takes a, a brain scan of his patients with OCD and I think it's a month or so, he, he does what's called cognitive behavioral therapy. And he has this like what he calls like a four-step uh, uh, process of essentially what, what he, the, the prescription, if you will, that he gives them is every time you have these thoughts come, come to you. And what's interesting too is that these people know when these thoughts are being induced by their anxiety or OCD or these are thoughts they're having naturally. What do I mean by that? Uh, we're talking about consciousness, and you know another feature of consciousness is what's called a uh, first-person introspective awareness. That essentially means that um, um, I've heard Moreland put it this way: a neuroscientist can know more about my brain than I do, but he cannot know more about my mental life than I do because right. the only access to my mental life is through me, the first-person subject. You cannot access it through a third-person observer. Meaning the doctor so, sitting in front of you, the scientist sitting in front of you, is right. going to have to ask you questions for you to tell right. them, Here, here's what's going on. That's right. That's right. Just just uh, similar to an eye doctor even. you know, yeah. um, They can look at your eyes, but they're still going to have you do that test where you cover one eye. And you know, you, they say, what is this number? And you say, oh, it's a three. You know, they're not going to say, nope, you're lying or you're dumb. It's an eight. No, they, they trust your, that you are presenting to them what you, the quality, the quality of the state of consciousness that you see. They're trusting you're, you're being accurate with that. And that's how they know what, what glasses to give you. And so you can crack open my brain and see my, you can crack open my skull and see my brain, but you can't crack open my skull and see my thoughts. <clears throat> you know, I, there, there's a joke that, um, you know, an, an astronaut, you know, goes up to, um, no, a neuroscientist goes, astronaut goes up to a neuroscientist and says, I've been to space many times. I've never seen an angel. And the neuroscientist says, well, I've done many brain surgeries and I've never seen a thought. Um, <clears throat> so, so these are not things that you, they have no physical properties. Now, back, back to uh, Swartz, 
what he does is he says, when you have these thoughts that you know are being brought upon you by your condition, he basically gives this like step process of how to recognize it and how to kind of challenge your thoughts essentially. And then he, and then after they did this successfully for about a month, he took another brain scan and what he noticed was that the chemistry of the brain was different and they had in a literal sense, rewired their brain in many mm -hmm. aspects by challenging and thinking differently. Now, this is known as neuroplasticity, like you mentioned, that neurons can, you know, connect, reconnect, stretch, and just do interesting different things. But there was nothing that caused it physically, per se, there was something, in other words, there were these thoughts that caused these things to change. So here you have this uh, interesting example, this phenomenon, really, uh, even with something like the the placebo effect, there's a great book called The Spiritual Brain, I believe. Um, Mario Beauregard, and I forget who else wrote that. But it talks about how by doing these mental activities, you can literally change the chemistry of your brain and you can change the physical outcomes of things. So this would show, I'd say, uh, this is the empirical stuff I'm talking about, that you have this soul that is ontologically prior to the body. It is it is transcendent to the body, and it is a thing, like I said in my definition, that possesses consciousness that animates the body, and it's a thing that that is um, that is in control, if you will. Now, you even mentioned how this applies to spiritual formation. Well, the Bible says to renew your mind, Correct. right? The Bible says to take your thoughts thoughts captive. That sounds like cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, that, that sounds like, you know, when I, I beat my flesh into submission or Paul says in Romans 7, what I want to do, I don't do. And, and what I don't want to do, I end up doing. And I realize there is nothing good within me. That is my flesh, he specifies. Uh, but my inner man, you know, his spirit, he says. Uh, but, but this is, but, you know, I, I, I want to do these things, but, you know, I have to deal with my flesh. And, and it looks like here he's talking about substance dualism. And talking about how there are proclivities of his flesh, and and um, this is also goes into uh, present yourself as a living sacrifice, pre presenting the members of your body to Christ. Mm -hmm. So you are literally uh, presenting the parts of you that need fixing, just like you would present your brain to a neuroscience, you know, for help. You're presenting these things to God and and saying, I need help with these, and working on them in in various aspects. And this goes into spiritual formation, renewing your mind. And again, that that could in itself could be a whole other show. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so it without deals with habits, and and it seems to me that when I when I read literature of uh, you know whatever like 1600s, you're reading someone talking about uh, you know uh, sanctification, and they're explaining about your stuff and and the changes that are happening. It's like, oh, that's I I think that's what's happening, right? They might not have the lingo, they might not have whatever the 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 science to back it up, but it 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 seems to be uh, that's what's happening and then you see that in the scriptures as well uh, here's the way i want to shift uh, our attention because quite a bit and quite often when i talk and share with people and i say well you know i believe that i have a body and i'm a soul um i don't know maybe two out of five people depending on what kind of a community i'm in somebody somewhere will be like no 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 the Bible teaches that you have a uh, you are three in a trinity. Like God is a trinity, you are a trinity. Uh, you are a soul, a spirit, and a body. Um, wh why is it that you're not that? What is that? Wh how is? Uh, oh, let me backtrack. What's the difference between that view, what we call the tripartite view, and 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 dualism, the bipartite view? Um, and then why don't you think that's the case 
and then I'll have a follow up after that. <clears throat> yeah, no problem. Um, so, so that's usually known as like a, like you said, a tripartite or a trichotomous view. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, some people, oh, gosh, I, I'm not going to mention names, even if I did, you don't know who they are, but I laugh because I, I've, I've had this question many times, but you know, someone said, well, it's like the Trinity, you know, uh, God's three persons and you were body, soul, and spirit. And I said, well, we're not three persons. It's not, it's Correct. not an accurate analogy. It's, it's, I think it's, it's a really bad illustration to use for the Trinity, first of all. And I think a lot of people tend to hold to that view because of the Trinity, which, which is like a, it's like you're you're choosing your metaphysics on the basis of how good of an illustration or analogy it can be for some of your theology. But um, that aside, on the substance dualist view, um, and th there are various versions of substance dualism. Okay. Uh, I'll say that up front. We won't go into those. But essentially, they would all agree that there is something immaterial to you, and then there's a body. Now, um, <clears throat> note that on a substance dualist view, like the one I hold to, uh, which I think Moreland calls a, um, a Thomistic-like dualism. I think, he, uh, gosh, I've, is it Aristotelian metaphysics dualism, something like that. Um, basically, on the view that I hold to, I can exist without a body, and I will exist without a body in the intermediate state, which means having a body is not essential to my nature identity. Now, to be clear, uh, because, uh, you know, people, because people, when I start talking about I am a soul that has a body, I'm not reduced or identical to a body. You know, some people say, well, how do you avoid going into Gnosticism? Correct. And I say, well, I, I just don't do it. <laughs> you just don't go there. <laughs> well, I just don't view my physical body as just like an evil thing or anything physical. Exactly. Evil. That's right. Simple. Exactly. There's no implication to dualism and Gnosticism. Um, you know, just because I'm not a body doesn't mean all of a sudden the body is a bad thing. So I will say this, is that the most natural state for a soul to be in is embodied. It, we, we are naturally meant to be embodied. Nevertheless, Paul teaches there will be a state where we will be disembodied if we die prior to the final resurrection. So on, on the view of substance dualism I hold to, it, given that I – assuming that I will um, die before the final resurrection, I will exist as embodied. So having a body is not essential to my nature. Contrast that with like a hylomorphous view – where they would say that these the, this composite, they, they're both necessary to be who you are. Mm -hmm. I disagree, but my point to all that is this. On my view, I am one thing, a substance. Now, contrast that with the trichotomous or tripartite view. Um, even if we were to say, though not entirely accurate, if we were to say on substance dualism there are two substances, physical and immaterial, the trichotomous or tripartite view will have to say there are three substances. Um, a soul, a spirit, and a body. Now, when I tell people I'm a substance dualist, most trichotomists will say, oh, so you don't believe in the spirit. And I say, no, I, I do. Like, no, why would you say that? Of course I believe in the spirit. What do you mean? They're like, well, you only believe in two things. I'm like, well, no, I, I believe there's only two, two dominant things. There's a substance and a physical body. And, and even then there seems to be something lost in translation because technically on a trichotomist view, you would have to say there are three substances and the question is going to have to become this. Which one of those three are you? On the substance dualist view, I am the soul. And my body is something that I can exist without. Hmm. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it can a, – a, a body without a soul is a corpse. So we could say in that, in that technical metaphysical sense, it's an inseparable part of me. But you, know, you can chop off pieces of my body, and I can be separated from my body. 
So at my core, I am a soul. Now on the trichotomous view, I like to ask, which one are you? And sometimes they'll say, well, I'm the spirit or I'm the soul, whatever. Of course, they won't say I'm the body. But here's a problem. So when I tell, I explain to them, yes, I believe in a spirit, but I believe that the spirit is a faculty of the soul, much like my mind is a faculty of my soul. So if I were to ask you what part of your body taste, is it, or what, what taste, is it you tasting or is it your taste buds tasting? Mm -hmm. Now that's a trick question because the answer is I am tasting by way of my taste buds. Right. In other words, I am using a faculty of my body to taste, but it's it's me. It's a both hand. Now, just like we have different um, faculties within our body, we have eyes to see, uh, we have tongues to taste, ears to hear, and whatnot. I use those faculties of my body to do certain things. In the same way, my soul. Think of it like a compartment of of different drawers. My soul is a substance, me, and within my soul, I have faculties such as consciousness, and I have a faculty of spirit. And I would say it's that faculty of spirit is what gives me fellowship and communion with God. Now, if if let's say the, the trichotomist and I agree, okay, yes, you communicate with God by way of your spirit. Well, then here's a question. If you're separating these two as two different substances, which one are you? Because if you're the soul, then if you're the soul and you got the spirit over here, and I'm not I'm not I don't mean to imply like a physical distance of separation, but if there's two substances, Correct. well then when the spirit's praying. Well, then that's not you praying because you're not the spirit. You're the soul. And they'll say, okay, well, I am the spirit. Okay, well, if you are the spirit, then whatever the soul does, like possesses consciousness, well, then who's that thinking because that's not you? In other words, you have to be one of these things. And if you're adding a third a third thing to it, if the trichotomist and the dualists agree, you can exist without a body. Okay, then. Now you got soul and spirit for the trichotomist. Which one are you? Because you have to be one of those. You can't be both. It seems like they're a unifying factor. Right. That that and that was going to be the next point is that there has to be something that grounds and possesses all these things into one. Um, as on the substance dualist view, I am a soul, and a the spirit is just a faculty of my soul, just like my mind or just like my tongue is a faculty, and my taste buds is a faculty of tasting, my ears is a faculty of my uh, capacity to hear and things and and so forth. So I think the trichotomous view has I think it's unbiblical, and I think it also has problems when it comes to the metaphysics of well, which one of these. Of these three things are you and what is the other guy doing while you're you know while you're doing this over here you know <laughs> the, other guy, the other guy they got this other existence sort of thing i mean this is partly why within the trinity we don't uh, we have to be very careful as how we explain it in regards to persons and mm -hmm. natures because there is a unifying factor when it comes to the trinity of when we're talking about nature and the distinction uh, the this distinctness of the persons and unified in the nature of the things uh, where in in this sort of a view, it, it, it like you separate it. That's great, but you can't you can't put it back together. Uh, if we want to use uh, common language, and yeah. um, the, there's a linguistic argument I think to be made here biblically uh, that uh, some of this stuff is interchangeably used in the Greek soul and spirit. So in in Armenian, it's it's very much kind of like the Greek, and so it, it's so hoki is a word in Armenian. Uh, you can think of it like Hoki, H-O-K-I. Did uh, you call me? Uh, yeah, I know. Huh? Um, or you can use a Q there. Um, and it it means a bunch of things, depending on the context. So if you ask me, um, uh, like, hey, how many people are there in the room? You would actually use that word, Hoki. Um, and then my response would be whatever. There's eight 
Hokies, right? But it also literally means, other than person, it also means spirit. Literally, it means spirit. Like if I want to talk about my spirit, I would say that. Or if I want to talk about the Holy Spirit, I would use that word. Um, and you can interchangeably use that word with the soul as well. Uh, so soul and spirit, in, linguistically, it doesn't, it doesn't create this issue that maybe we see it in the English. Um, and I think it's important that we realize the Greek of the Bible and context matters depending on what's talk, what the same word could be used or multiple words could be used talking about the same thing um, without developing a theology and somehow trying to stick that into like this Trinitarian argument, which is not, like you said, that good of an argument because you have the three separate stuff, but you don't have the unifying back factor and in having the three separate stuff, it creates an issue of well, which one of these three things are you, right? Then yeah, and like you're saying, yeah. you know that they're 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 interchangeable, and sometimes I think it's called a synecdote. Um, I can look that up. Uh, where sometimes the um, the Bible is using uh, part to whole relationships. Um, yeah, synecdote. Uh, Part to whole relationships where the there's emphasis on one part, but it's talking about the whole thing, because like like you were saying, yeah, uh, you know, pneuma, ruach, you know, whether you're Greek, Hebrew, uh, um, things like that, they can be interchangeable. Um, but depending on what the emphasis of the text is, they might use different words. So, for example, if I said all hands on deck, hmm. I don't mean I want you to chop your hand off and throw it onto the deck. I want your whole body, but I'm emphasizing the use of the word hand to convey the notion or the idea that I want your service. I want your your work over here. The reason I'm calling you is because I need your help or I need a hand. I don't just need your hand. I need your whole body. Um, in the same way, you know, when the Bible talks about, you know, the soul did this or, or his spirit fell or his face fell, his heart fell. Because because when people say, well, the Bible talks about spirit, why are you just a dullest? I'm like, yeah, it also talks about mind. I was talking about the stomach. I was talking about the heart. I was talking about this, but we're not going to multiply entities of substances. <laughs> you know, they're they're all uh, like you were you, the, the language you use. You know, it's all unified in in, in a substance, namely me, the soul. So, um, so yeah, it, when when we're reading the, the scripture, yeah, there's going to be certain emphasis on some things as opposed to others, but um, th that can into a little bit more technicality of the exegesis or the context or the language and how it's been used. But like I said, um, oftentimes it can be interchangeable. Um, I do find it interesting. Um, I don't know how much metaphysics we can take from this, but you know, God put the the breath into Adam in, into the into what he made from dirt. He didn't he didn't breathe twice, right? He breathed once. <laughs> um, so there was the, so even there there seems to be this implication of there's two things at play here: something physical and something spiritual. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in recent times, I've become a lot more, um, I don't know what words, to, uh, passionate wouldn't be the right word, interested in um, an argument for God's existence from consciousness, where, you know, it, it's a bit different. You don't hear it as often. Uh, plenty of times, you know, we hear the cosmological argument, and we hear... Um, argument from design and morality and all these things. One of, one of the things we don't um, hear quite often is an argument for God's existence from consciousness. Now, this is something that you've brought up. Uh, you've brought it up in debates. You've brought it up in conversations. Um, I, I want you to kind of run through that quickly and, and why you think it's, it's a good argument um, in the first place. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a 
So I think Moreland's argument is one of the best formulations of it, which is a bit technical. I don't have it memorized off the top of my head, but basically in casual conversations or in like um, popular level debates, you know, kind of like, you know, online discussions, essentially um, it, there's a few ways, ways to go around doing it. Um, you can look at it like an epistemic chain. Here's one way. I would argue that um, in Moreland's book, actually, I think I... <clears throat> Uh, Consciousness and the Existence of God. This is a great book. It, it is a technical level book. It, it, um, it, it's made, I forget where he says it here, but yeah, it's a technical level book. If, if you're just getting into it, I would not recommend it. Um, but uh, there he essentially... Maybe a simpler, j just to recommend the simpler version uh, of that book, which I've been listening to recently on Audible. Well, there's, yeah, there's is, a, so here's the, this so is so like that's the, the one. Yeah, that's the one. Popular uh, level one. Yeah. My favorite, though, is this one here, Body and Soul by Moreland. Um, but yeah, the, the consciousness and existence of God, that's, um, that, that is a bit complicated. Um, but essentially, when you look at the naturalist ontology, I would argue that if there is no God, the most logically consistent position for one to take is to be a physicalist. Mm -hmm. um, this is what Paul Churchland argues and points out and, and other atheists. So essentially, we have no reason to believe in anything immaterial. Uh, some might argue for emergent properties. That's a whole other discussion. But essentially, um, at some point, the naturalist is, if he's going to be logically consistent, he's going to either have to punt to mystery or, you know, just call it a brute fact. Or essentially... Um, can see that yeah the, these things shouldn't uh, uh, shouldn't exist uh, in our framework anything immaterial like that so we can put it this way take something like consciousness uh, I was talking to uh, a non-believer who was a naturalist and I started by asking him this I said if if there is no God and atheism is true would you agree with me that um, nothing immaterial should exist. And he said, yeah. You know, I said nothing like angels, souls, demons, nothing like that. He said, yeah. I said, okay. So, so far we have, if atheism is true, um, nothing non-physical should exist. And I said, okay. And would you agree with me, though, that by the same token, this would also imply that if something non-physical did exist, well, then atheism couldn't be true. And he says, and he thought for a second, he goes, yeah, I guess I would follow. I said, okay, great. And he says, okay, but like what? I said, well, I'm glad you asked. And we talked about consciousness, and I we talked about what I told you earlier. And I said, so so it seems to me then, if atheism is true, then consciousness should not exist because consciousness is not physical. Consciousness does exist, therefore atheism isn't true. Now, this is like a backdoor approach because Correct. for this reason, if we say atheism is a belief that there is no God, and if atheism is false, then its negation is true, which is a belief that there is a God. So if Atheism is true. Consciousness shouldn't exist. Consciousness does exist. Therefore, atheism is false. Therefore, theism is true. God exists. Um, that That's one way uh, to go about it. I know Moreland has, and I, I pulled up uh, one of his sections. Um, he has different forms of the argument. Here's one. He says, taken as a straightforward deductive argument, the argument from consciousness becomes the following. <clears throat> mental events are genuine non-physical mental entities that exist. Premise two. Specific mental event types are regularly correlated with specific physical event types. Three, there is an explanation for these correlations. Four, personal explanation is different from, naturalist, from natural scientific explanation. 
five, the explanation for these correlations is either personal or natural scientific explanations. Six, the explanation is not nat a natural scientific one. Seven, therefore, the explanation is a personal one. Eight, if the explanation is personal, then it is theistic. Nine, therefore, the explanation is theistic. Hmm. Um, so it, it, that's that's one version. Like I said, it's, it comes from a complicated book. Um, but even when you look at just the, the, the paradigm of uh, what Moreland calls a grand story of naturalism, you don't have any room for consciousness or it shouldn't be anything like uh, the soul. And then again, as we talked earlier, when you get rid of things like consciousness or the soul, well, you can't have free will. You can't have moral praise or blame. You can't have intellectual integrity, rational responsibility. Um, some other arguments would be like identity through change uh, that we didn't get into. Um, uh, degree uh, The argument from the indivisibility of personhood, where essentially there are certain features about ourselves that we want to hold to. Like Jaguar Kim here. Uh, I'll briefly go into one of those arguments I mentioned. Um, identity through change. So Jack Wan Kim gave an interesting argument in his book, uh, Philosophy of Mind, Atheist uh, Philosopher, he, he, where he's presenting the arguments for dualism. And one that he thinks is interesting, he says, in 2001, this brain and body did not exist. And he says that because we now know through, through science that virtually, virtually every cell, not every cell, but virtually every cell in our body has changed every seven to ten years. And Jack Wan Kim says, well, in 2001, this brain and body did not exist. But I did exist in 2001, mm -hmm. and what follows from that? Well, then I'm not identical or reducible to this brain and body. Um, so the question is, going back, let, let's kind of uh, put these together with like moral, uh, moral praise or blame. If I committed a crime seven and ten years ago, but they just now found the evidence today to convict me, and let's say Jay Warner Wallace comes to my door, and you know he says, you know, we just found the evidence, I'm going to have to take you in, and you know how silly would it be for me to say, well, look, Jay. You know that we're just purely physical objects and that we don't retain identity to change. So whoever you're looking for is someone who existed seven and ten years ago because I am now a new set of <laughs> don't know properties who that and guy parts. Is. Yeah, yeah. Good luck. Go find him, but good luck. He doesn't exist. Now, of course, he's going to slap the cuffs on me. Why? Because we know that we do retain identity to change uh, uh, despite part replacement. And the only thing that could uh, explain and ground that identity to change would have to be something like a soul not something physical and again you have this uh this, yeah, the, the, the uh, only argument. response some people might give to this is something like memories right like memories are the things that uh keep that sort of a con continuation happening but the counter argument it seems to me is is very simple to this right like if somebody falls down and hits their head and loses uh you know forgets the last eight years of their life it's like well is it this person or you know people go into comas and come out and they don't remember who they are um, notice even the way we speak about that and those individuals. It's like, oh, that person has lost their memories. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. We will completely um, lose all reference points if we took that to be the case. If we took your memories are what make you you, um, we don't we don't have any more reference. Uh, so who is the individual yeah. having the memories in the first place? Right. Like it seems to be that there's a distinction there. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so there's there's like three different views of identity uh, through change. One is like the, the, the – you can have like the body view, the brain view, the brain and body view, or the memory view. Uh, but, yeah, they all have their problems because, you know, like you just said, you know, say you forget your memory. I was talking to an atheist once on, on, on her channel. She invited me on to talk about this, and she held to the memory view. 
And I said, okay, suppose you have this guy who's been married for 20 years, has five kids, you know, they're in love, gets in a car wreck, loses his memory. I said, so on your view, this is a different person. She says, yes. I said, okay, so this guy's single now, has no kids, no relation. She says, yeah, I guess so. I said, okay. Now let's say five months later, he gets his memory back. Does that mean that, let's say it's John, John ceased to exist and five months later, John came back into existence, and whoever that temporary five-month guy was, he stopped existing once John came back. He's like John Prime One or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, so so you get into these these metaphysical implications that are just so bizarre th that, I mean, I would say honestly, are are hoops and loops that the non-believer has to jump through to try and avoid this conclusion of there being something immaterial, there being a soul, and at the end of the day, that there being God. Right. Correct. Correct. Well said. Uh, again, I, I love that argument. I, I think it's it's really fun to go in that direction. Um, and I think people generally, because we are so aware of ourselves, we're so aware of our consciousness, uh, that it's it's a really cool way of having that sort of a conversation. Uh, for those who don't realize, this stuff is all over our popular media and stuff like that. Um, in recent times, if you are a Marvel um fanatic or fan or whatever like that, you, you really saw a version of this uh, kind of peek its head and sort of get ruined to a certain extent. Uh, but in the WandaVision series, right? Um, it's like, what what are we looking at? You know, what is an identity if it's just completely made up based on memories or something like that? You know? So Well, I, I'm a Christian. I don't watch any of that stuff. So oh, I don't yeah, know what you're yeah. talking about. Sinners. No, but yes, <laughs> in WandaVision, they did the ship of Theseus. Correct. So that's something that's something I, I don't think we touched on, but it has to do with identity through change where because, OK, so one thing I didn't touch on, but I'll briefly mention is there's a difference between a substance and what's called an aggregate. Um, purely physical objects are aggregates. Uh, they are a collection of separable parts held together in a certain structure. Something as simple as a pin. This is an aggregate. It has separable parts. And the difference between a substance and an aggregate is that for um, – to get a little bit technical, for aggregates, the parts exist ontologically prior to the whole, mm. whereas for substances, the wholes exist ontologically prior to the parts. What does that mean? If I remove a tire from a car, it may it, it keeps its existence and identity as a tire independent of its connection to the car. And what that shows us is that the parts exist before the whole comes into existence. You can lay all the pieces of a car on, you know, on the floor. And they exist, and the car doesn't come into existence until you put them together. Now, the problem with this is that, uh, or rather just the fact of the matter is, that purely physical objects, aggregates, do not maintain identity through change or part replacement. Now, contrast that with the substance. I am a substance, and I, my, I as a whole exist prior to my parts. Um, animals are substances. Living things, traditionally speaking, were substances. So, you know, when a dog's born, a puppy... It doesn't have all its parts yet, but it exists. Why? Because as a whole, it exists prior to the parts. But if you cut, if you severed my arm, Aristotle argued, my that arm will lose its ex, its identity as my arm, as a human arm, which is evident by the fact that in a few days it will cease to exist. So for aggregates, parts exist before the whole. For substances, the wholes exist prior to the parts. And this goes now into the ship of Theseus. If I replace I use the example of a car, just and, and I kind of add to the example just to make it clear. I ask people, if I change the tires of a car, is it the same car? Some people say yes. Okay. I'd say no, but in a popular sense, we could say yes. Metaphysically speaking, no. If I can switch analogies real quick, 
if you remove a tricycle, if you remove a wheel from a tricycle, metaphysically speaking, we'd have to say a tricycle has ceased to exist and a bicycle has come into existence. Now, that out of the way, change the tires on a car. People say it's still the same car. Okay. Now let's change every single nut and bolt of the car, every part of the car. Is it the same car? But before you answer that question, let's take the replace parts and put those back together. Now you have two cars. And then my question is, which one of these two is the original, if any of these? Now, regardless of your answer, I think one thing is certain, they both cannot be the original. And that shows us at some point, one of them ceased to exist, if not both. But the point is, um, aggregates do not maintain maintain identity to change or part replacement. So again, this goes back into the identity to change. If I, if I'm either a soul or a purely physical object, if I'm a purely physical object, I do not retain identity to change, but I do retain identity to change. Therefore, I'm not a purely physical object. Therefore, I am a soul. Correct. And and there's all sorts of ethical implications of this. That's one of the things. Like some people might sit there and they're like, "Hey, you know, you guys are just you know philosophizing and you know it's annoying and stuff like that." And it's like, uh, no, uh, how we punish criminals. Abortion is a major, uh, yes. the, the, the consequences of what you believe on this subject are going to determine on your views politically, your views about life, uh, whether you say that's my baby in my, <laughs> in my womb um, or whether that's the same baby that was in your womb and has now been born and three days old, whether you can even say that. There's so many implications of this when it comes to the ethics of it that we have to have a position on this. The problem is that we live in a society where folks vote, they have opinions on these matters, and have no idea what's going on when it comes to the metaphysics and the conversation about it. And so therefore we get all, sort, all sorts of confusing thoughts out there where wanting a child, for example... Um, determines whether that's a human or not, which seems like ridiculously arbitrarily and, and not very smart. Right. So here's an example that, you know, the ethics of this. If a, if a woman is in her car uh, and she is driving to the abortion clinic and I run uh, my, and she's going to go have an abortion and I run my car into that woman and uh, her child dies in the womb, I get tried for murder, but she was on her way to get an abortion. And if she gets there without anything happening and she has the abortion, she's not tried for murder. Neither is the doctor, right? This is where our legal system seems to be like ridiculously confused about these stuff. And you want to be consistent in your beliefs and how you apply the law. But there are many different ethical uh, situations that this answers or it brings up or it gives clarity. And yesterday, we're going to end soon, but yet, uh, last night we were doing the Q&A. Some people were asking about, um, you know, robots being used for um, uh, for pleasure, let's just say, and uh, what <laughs> the ethics of that and, and what that looks like. You know, th these things matter. The way we view what a robot is and what it even means for something to be like artificial intelligence, for something to be intelligent or self-aware or any like all of this comes back to exactly what we're talking about right now. Whether they have souls, whether they don't. Cloning is a part of this whole conversation. Animal cruelty is a whole part of this conversation, right? Like whether you're a vegan or not is a part of this whole conversation. Uh, it, it shouldn't be surprising to us that there are people who are vegans 
who refer to the killing of animals as murder because they have a certain metaphysics that they bring into the conversation that we don't all agree on. There's a really interesting ethical uh, example that gets given between um, um, it w- that has to do with, uh, say, like generally Indian culture and cows and how they're sacred and so on and so forth. And that, uh, and the comparison you make is that usually people you give that example and say, uh, we have different ethical frameworks. Uh, but in reality, you have the same framework. It's just being exposed to different ways. Because if I believe in reincarnation, then I'm not going to eat animals because those animals are reincarnated human beings, right? Say your grandma, uh, possibly. And But I also, in my culture, I don't believe that we should eat our grandparents anyways. So it's just a form that we're arguing over. It's uh, We both agree that we shouldn't eat grandparents, but they believe in reincarnation and they think that animal is a grandparent mm-hmm. in comparison to my worldview where the animal is the animal and not a human. So again, these things matter quite a bit. Um, Eric, I want to thank you, man. I want to thank you for jumping on in here and just uh, enlightening us and, and having this yeah, conversation. Yeah, can, can I add to that too? Yeah, what, yeah absolutely. What you said yeah. is... Um, I like that you said, you know, that we have these views about things without understanding the metaphysical implications. I think one one thing is interesting. So uh, this may or may not get your get this video demonetized. So I apologize in advance. Uh, Here we go. Uh, um, So, you know, transgenderism, you know, is a hot topic. Yes. And essentially you have this idea that people are saying I am I was born into the wrong body or I my who I am does not match my body. Note the implication. So I, I disagree. First of all, I disagree with this with this uh, uh, idea. But just for the sake of argument, note the implication: they are conceding that they are not identical or reducible to their physical body, and by default, to even hold to something like this, you would have to assume ontologically some type of dualistic position of a soul and body. And if that's the case, then God must exist. And if God exists, I wonder what he thinks of this, huh? He probably wrote a book talking about that. Let's see what he has to say before we kind of throw out our our views on this. So I, I just find it interesting. But yeah, we, we we have our culture has these views of so many things without considering the metaphysical implications of what they're actually saying. Yeah. So uh, here's an idea: uh, transgenderism as an argument for God's existence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, I can see uh, that for I sure. Wonder, I wonder how that video huh. will do. I might actually work on that. Yeah, I like that. I might have to use that in an <laughs> argument or something. Next time I have a debate on a college campus, I think I'm going to have to... There, huh. there you go. Because you're essentially saying you're trapped in a body, in the uh-huh. wrong body. But who's the you that's trapped? Or if it's a soul? Yes. Well, if souls exist, right. if souls exist, non-physical things exist, immaterial things exist, then... God exists because God tends to be the answer to why souls exist or else you have an infinite regress. If God exists, then morality exists. Then it gets flipped back on. Does God have any intentions about sexuality? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a good <laughs> point. Whether it gets demonetized or not, that's a good point. doesn't matter. So. <laughs> right on, man. Thanks well, yeah, lot, well, man. thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I love it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Thank you guys for hanging in here for this conversation. If you're watching the replay, hopefully you've enjoyed it. And um, 
we will have, I think, Eric uh, back on again some other time to to have some other discussions. And there's so many directions we can go into. We we just I just wanted this to be a introductory kind of thing, and then we'll take it into the all all the different directions uh, in the future. And thank you guys for hanging in there and uh, going through it. If you have to watch this uh, again, go ahead and watch it again. Uh, oh, I, and I'll end it with this because Eric's in the chat. Go subscribe to his channel, please. Uh, he's got a YouTube channel as well, sure. and uh, he he posts his uh, his videos uh, in there and his debates in there. So go to the Eric Hernandez. He's in comments. Click it. Go there. Subscribe. Subscribe, and follow him in the work he does. So with all that said, God bless you guys. Take care, and we will see you tomorrow. Thank <laughs> you.